his name. My name is Mark Chansky. I am the coordinator of the Reformed Baptist Network. We thank all the mighty men and women of Grace Baptist Church here in Taylor, South Carolina for all of the work that you've done. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I welcome you guests here to this 2023 RBNet General Assembly. RBNet's purpose is to glorify God through fellowship and cooperation in fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. Welcome to the South for some of you. (laughs) Welcome here to SEC country. I've heard there's a saying down here. It's called Roll Tide. Comes out of a place called Alabama. Roll Tide. It speaks of uh, some kind of unstoppable force that can't be restrained. Well, I've also heard of a story of a, of a King Canute and the tide, and it's a king. He was sick of the flattery of his courtiers, and he ordered that his throne would be set out on the beach at low tide. And he began to order the waters to halt their march, but then the waters marched toward him and soaked his feet and soaked his robes, and he turned to his flattering courtiers and says, let all men know how empty is the power of kings. Kings are little things when facing a tide. Michael Amati, where are you? Michael Amati, he's here somewhere. Uh, he's from Ireland, and I, was, I just saw that at, at, at Liverpool today, uh, at low tide versus high tide mark, it's a 29-foot difference. That's enough. A tide is to bury an army. And so that's kind of intimidating imagery, isn't it? Roll tide. But now in 2023, many of us have come here to this General Assembly and we're facing a rolling tide of evil in our land, aren't we? It's among our churches. For some of us, it's it's in our families. And it's drowning some of our souls. I mean, various places. I, I'm, from the, I'm from the state of Michigan. Holland, Michigan. We have the Tulip Festival in past decades. But this summer we had, for the first time, a gay rights festival. And I went and spoke there at the festival to the Boys and Girls Club. And I said, so, so what do you do if, if one of your boys and girls at your club has a same-sex attraction or compulsion. They said, well, of course, we'll affirm them. And I said, well, what do you do if they, have a, if they have a stealing compulsion to shoplift at Menards? Do you affirm them in that too? And that kind of reasoning, as I walked around the table, as soon I had two security guards and the festival director trying to usher me off the property in Holland, Michigan, in my own hometown. The tide of evil that's come. State of Michigan. Robert Elliott here? Where are you, Robert? Yeah, your state. It's roll tide of evil in your state too, brother. Because in your state, I just just read this week that there was in the state house a 61 to 16 state house vote where it says that parents who don't affirm their children in their pronouns or in their pursuit of trans surgery, that that those children will be forcibly removed from their home and reassigned to guardians appointed by the state. And Gavin Newsom said, you put that on my desk, I'll sign that thing. You see, it's a roll tide of evil as we see children being led into public schools which are basically cultural grooming centers. Or, where's John Heaney? John, are you here? State of Indiana! Even the state of Indiana, I was reading just this week about this progressive church. And a lot of this progressive church in Indianapolis, there is this Vanity Fair group of false prophets who are urging our youth in the Midwest, like, like, 
luring Pied Pipers. To, they're saying, come away from the truth you learned in your youth. We dare you young people. We dare you young people to be brave enough to deconstruct your faith. You heard that one in your town. Deconstruct your faith, which means go through that process of systematically dissecting the religion that's been forced on you from your youth by your pastors and by your parents and be real and believe what you really know to be true. It's a roll tide of evil. And brothers and sisters, look, we're, we're hip deep now in this world in troubled waters and now the, the chins of the least of our little ones are getting wet. And it's true in our land and in our communities Everywhere there's conforming, isn't there? And there's compromising, and there's collapsing. And some of us then come here, kind of feel beaten and defeated, and maybe even a little bit cynical and helpless up to our nostrils in an incoming tide of toxic immorality. In some ways, that's what I feel like coming here. We're just, we're just little men trying to stay at our posts like King Canute to hold back the tide. But with this circumstance, what, what hope do we have? I mean, it's like King Canute said, who am I, God, that, that I can hold back the tide? Well, that's our hope, isn't it? Our, our hope is that God who speaks in Job 38 who says, who is it who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And who is it who prescribed limits for it and set up bars and doors? And who is it who said, thus far you shall come and no further? Here shall your proud waves be stayed. Who is it? It's the Lord our God. It's the Lord our God who is here, about whom we've already sung. He is the one who can halt waves. He can part seas. He can heap up rivers. He can stop suns. He can turn tides. And so, listen, it may be bad. The momentum is against us. But it's a very small thing for this God to speak and bring revival and to drain our land of this tide of evil and to deluge it with a tide of good. Because that's our text as the Reformed Baptist Network. Habakkuk 2, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So in a sense, we are here and we are conducting what could be called in the south here a roll tide rally. We are asking our God, we're pleading with our God to, to help our fainting hearts. In fact, even tonight, we're starting by taking in the, the smelling salts of Dr. Pettit, the doctrines of grace for the pastor's heart. That's our hope, that you would brighten our eyes and and we think of with such a sovereign father who spared not his son and who's unleashed his spirit we can say to each other why so disturbed oh my soul why so downcast within me hope in God for he is the helper of our continents he can take us from being helpless to being filled with hopefulness and understand I'm not a post-millennialist I'm an optimistic ah millennialist. Amen. Amen. And our hope is that, my hope is that by Thursday we'll head back to our assigned posts on our seemingly doomed beaches, maybe staring down a worse than Egypt enemy. But there we are convinced that God is able to part the sea and save for him a people for his own name. Sing to the Lord for his highly exalted horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. And let's sing another song to that great king, the Lord Jesus, who sovereignly reigns over all things. Let's stand together.
My name is Dustin Battles. I pastor Mercy Baptist Church in Westchester, Ohio, and I have been asked to introduce Steve Pettitz to you, as he is probably unfamiliar to most of you, and I have been personally influenced by his preaching and ministry. Steve has served the Lord in many roles over the decades, a preacher, evangelist, pastor, musician, leader of Christian institutions, author, and of course, a husband and father. During Steve's freshman year at the Citadel, the military college of South Carolina, Christ changed his heart and life. Steve then pursued seminary education for gospel ministry at Bob Jones University. After taking an assistant pastorate role for a few years, he led a traveling team of young people for 29 years, taking the gospel to churches across the country and world. He also served for almost 10 years as the director of Northland Camp and Conference Center in Wisconsin. More recently, he was the president of Bob Jones University, where he served for nine years. One emphasis of his ministry has been discipleship. And because of this, he was well-loved and respected by students and faculty at BJU because he cared for their heart, not just their actions. In the same vein, he also helped rebuild relationships with many local Greenville churches, including this one right here. After serving at BJU, he has gone back on the road to serve local churches with the gospel once again with a team of young people at his side. I personally have been affected by his preaching and ministry, I find his preaching to be clear and powerful, yet warm. As a leader, Steve has also made an impact upon me at Northland Camp, where I served under his leadership. I remember being surprised that he knew everyone's names in advance, and that was because he had worked to prepare them so that he could know his, those working under him. And over that summer, I saw Steve lead the camp with pastoral care, wisdom, humility, and faithfulness. Steve is married to Terry. They have four adult children and five grandchildren, and we look forward to hearing Steve preach on the mystery of God's sovereignty and evangelism. Well, good evening. Thank you so much for the wonderful uh, honor it is to be here to speak. Uh, Brother Mark has already given us sermon number one, (laughs) and that was Awesome. Thank you, brother, for preparing our hearts uh, as you lifted up the Lord. And I will not forget the illustration of Canute. Thank you very much. Most of you I do not know. I'm sorry that I do not know you. A few of you I do, but I'm delighted to be here. There is a very warm atmosphere here. There is an enthusiasm. There is a love. There's an excitement, and you probably all need each other. And I hope that these next few days together will be days of God's working in your heart, encouraging you, strengthening you. We are all in, a, we are all in an experience of being molded into his image. And that's, uh, that is his work in our lives in his own way where we live, in his own omniscience of knowing how to change us and make us different. I'm going through it right now. I've gone back on the road in evangelism. I traveled 29 years as a full-time local church evangelist, and I started up again two weeks ago. I have been living with six Uh, Average age, 22-year-olds for two weeks. (laughs) My capacities are being stretched once again. It's baby boomer meets Gen Z. (laughs) When I say live with them, I mean live with them. And, And yet the Lord has been good and merciful. We are traveling as a gospel team, building bridges uh, to unbelievers through local churches, through gospel concerts. Our musical style is somewhere between bluegrass, Celtic, Getty, and whatever I like. So somewhere, somewhere in that neighborhood. And so uh, this week we traveled 1,500 miles. We did five gospel concerts, and uh, after which I preach a gospel message. 
And then, of course, church services on both ends of the weekend, on both Sundays. So I flew down today from Indianapolis, and I am, I am, I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Dustin, for your kind remarks, and I hope the Lord will minister grace in your heart. Our good brother tonight read from the book of Acts, chapter 18, and one other testimony I'd like to share, because I think y'all would appreciate this. A little over three years ago, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Cancer is a weird thing because when you get it, you don't, number one, know you have it, and you feel okay. What makes you feel bad are doctors. <laughs> and it was right about that time, maybe it, it, was, it was a little over three years ago, um, right about that time, I decided uh, there are three authors that I've tried to read over my ministry experience. Um, number one was Jonathan Edwards. Number two was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And then number three was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Everybody's read Spurgeon, sort of. You understand what I'm saying? A biography here, a book here, a few sermons here. But I needed a pastor, and I love my pastor, but I needed a pastor every day. And I've been reading Charles Haddon Spurgeon every day for three years. So if it sounds like Spurgeon, there's a reason for it. Not because I'm Spurgeon. Because my morning devotions are my wife walking by and I'm going like this. She, she says, what's going on? I said, I'm reading Spurgeon. I'm the biggest idiot on planet Earth. When I read it, I'm like, what, what am I doing? But it has ministered to my heart. And I hope that the Lord will continue to minister your heart as a, as, a, as a servant of God who are constantly in need of grace all the time, all the time. And I hope the Lord will give that to you tonight. May we pray. Lord, our needs are great tonight. You've assembled this group of pastors and pastors' wives and servants even in the nature of our singing tonight is a revelation that you can't sing that loud and not have great heart needs. And so, Lord, meet the needs tonight. <clears throat> whether it's discouragement, confusion, or whether it's encouragement, may your word strengthen our souls tonight as we understand your purpose and plan in the world to fulfill your purposes as been stated tonight in the mission of this assembly. So bless your word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. An incredible event takes place while the great apostle Paul is preaching in the city of Corinth. He is on his second missionary journey. And as always, there has been both blessings and opposition to his evangelistic work. We come to Acts chapter 18. As you read the text of Scripture, as our good brother did tonight, there seems to be implied in the reading of it a number of things. First, that Paul had seen some blessing. The preceding verse in verse 8 says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his, with his, with, uh, with his entire family, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So there was blessing, and God was working. And yet, there has seemed to be the implication that Paul was facing fears. He was fighting with struggles in his own heart, as we all do in ministry. And perhaps he was wondering, should I stay? Or is it time for me to go? Because we we know in this vision that the Lord gave him that the result of it was that he stayed and he continued on doing this evangelistic work for the next year and six months. And the Lord comes to him in this night vision and he encourages him with three comforting realities. And these are the things that if, if the Lord needed to comfort the Apostle Paul's heart in his work, what about us? 
And the first thing he did is that he comforted, he was comforted with God's presence. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you. The comforting reality of God's presence in my life. The psalm, psalmist Moses wrote in Psalm 90 that the Lord was his dwelling place. Living 90 years, tearing down, putting up tents, moving as the Lord directs him, not really knowing exactly where he was going to go. He had learned that the Lord was his dwelling place. Is the Lord your dwelling place tonight? Is that where you find your daily reality of life? And then notice, secondly, he is comforted with God's protection. He said, no one will attack you to harm you. The Lord is your shield. And he will protect his servants. Now, let me just stop here and say, if this is all the Lord said to Paul to encourage him to stay and do his work, that is plenty sufficient. His presence and his protection, because he already has God's plan to go into the world and to preach the gospel. But the Lord did something else for him. For here, he comforted him with God's purpose. Notice what he says. For I have many in this city who are my people. This was an evangelist, a church planter, a gospel preacher. What could have been more encouraging for him to hear, I have many people in this city. Wow, if that's true, I, I don't know if I want to take a day off. I have many people in this city. And it is with this statement to Paul that he stayed for another year and a half preaching the gospel in the city of Corinth. And so tonight, I'd like us to look at two things. One is just general. What does he mean by this statement? I have much people in this city. And then secondly, we'll look at it in two ways specifically in application to us. Let's consider, first of all, the statement, for I have in many in this city who are my people. What does this mean? Well, essentially, it's pretty clear that God is sovereign over the salvation of people. God is not saying that I know the future and who is going to make a decision to accept me or reject me, which, by the way, he knows. God is not saying that I've looked down the corridor of time and I see who would choose to love me and therefore I've chosen to love and accept them. For we already know because John has said we love him because he first loved us. So what is he saying? Well, you can study it in the Greek. You guys know the Greek. He's saying, there is to me, or there belongs to me in this city, right now, many who are mine already. Now, Paul, you don't know who they are. And Paul, they don't know who they are. <laughs> but Paul, I know who they are because I have chosen them to be mine through my son, Jesus Christ. He said, I have much people in this city. These are mine. Now, I think it has to be clear that he chooses you before you choose him. Otherwise, how can you explain the verse? So Paul, don't be discouraged or fearful. But continue in your evangelistic work. Because in my plan, I am directing and I am ordering your work in order to fulfill my own eternal plan to save my people through your preaching. Now, throughout the book of Acts, we have a cluster of verses that reveals 
this tremendous mystery, because it is, of God's sovereignty working in salvation. We see this, first of all, in the death of Jesus, Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Clearly, those men made the decision, but in the great mystery of God, it was his purpose and plan. Acts 4.27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Why doth the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing and yet at the same time God is ordering and directing this because God will never be defeated by the plans of man. In Peter's sermon on Pentecost, he announces this truth. In Acts 2.38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. But we need to read verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then let me say that Luke acknowledges that Paul's success in his first missionary journey is attributed to God's sovereignty. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And then let me say, we see this work in an individual's heart named Lydia in the city of Philippi. In Acts 16, 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Every one of you have preached the gospel to people where it seemed like the lights were on, but nobody was at home. And you've wondered, what can I do to help them see? And the answer is, keep preaching. And keep praying so that one day the Lord opens their hearts. So, in our comprehensive ability, the sovereignty of God is a profound mystery. But in God's infinite wisdom, his purposes are as good as accomplished. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, can you apply that to your locale? Can you? Where you live in your community or in your ministry, do you believe that there are many in this city who are the Lord's? That was given to this man who was in the midst of earnest, intense, evangelistic work. And God encourages our heart through this. Now, specifically, what are some of the ways we can look at this? And two things I'd like to say. The first one is, is more negative, and then the second one is more positive. And let me say that the sovereignty of God is not a hindrance to our responsibility to evangelize. It's not. It is very clear Paul's vision in the night came as he was busy in this work. So first of all, evangelism is clearly our duty. After the Lord resurrected from the dead and prior to his ascension into heaven, in all of the gospel accounts, including the book of Acts, go back and read it. He gave one great primary command. What was it? 
Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Luke 24, that, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in my name among all people. Acts chapter 1, and after the Spirit has come upon you, you shall go out and preach the gospel beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. God has commanded all of us to fulfill this singular great command. It should be at our forefront. It should be the passion of our heart to preach the gospel. It is our duty. The older theologians spoke of God's will of precept. And God's will of purpose. God's will of precept is his, public, his published declaration of what man is to do. God's will of purpose is that he has decreed that he will do what he has purposed to do. Which is largely secret. So that we read in Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. The principle of evangelism is the rule of duty. Our responsibility is to obey God's revealed will. We are to order our lives by the light of his commands, not by the mystery of his sovereignty. Secondly, let me say that evangelism is a necessity. This should be clear. No one can be saved apart from hearing the gospel. Romans 10, 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how can they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how can they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Paul uses very simple logic where he starts from one point and works his way backwards. The God who ordained the end, salvation, has ordained the means, evangelism. If people do not hear the gospel, then they cannot be saved. Perhaps you've read the story of William Carey who lived in England in 1786, he had been studying the scriptures and he came to the conclusion that God expects all Christians to play an active role in God's mission in the world. When Carey initially shared his ideas and his desire to go to India as a missionary, to, uh, he shared this to his congregation. One of the elders said to him, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Now the truth is, that's true. But Carey didn't sit down. Guided by the word, he persisted. And the Baptist Missionary Society was born, which became a model for sending missionaries into the world from both England and America. Carey's passion to evangelize was right. For God's way of saving men is through his servants going into the world to preach the gospel. So it should be clear to us that that this is not to hinder our evangelism. And let me say this also, that number three, that evangelism, the, the evangelism is the means by which God calls people to come to Christ. We should understand the calling and how God calls. That should be clear to us. For there is the external call. It's the preaching of the gospel. It is the preacher announcing that God invites whosoever will may come. And this invitation is free, it is unlimited, and it is sincere. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Gospel preaching makes men responsible to believe. The Bible doesn't say men miss heaven because they are not elect, but because they neglect so great salvation. That's the way a sinner is to feel. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. But we also know that it is through gospel preaching 
that not only does God call in the external manner, but miraculously, he calls through the internal manner. And when Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, the word draw means to drag, to pull, requiring force because of inertia. The object is being dragged. And we understand that there is a miracle that takes place in the preaching of the gospel through God's own purposes, His own choices to bring light to those who have no understanding and to draw His own. Perhaps the best way I can explain it is an illustration. Who else can I use but Charles Spurgeon? In 1867, on October 13th, at the age of 33 years old, he preached a sermon called The Great Attraction. And of course, the sermon text was, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And he said these words, Jesus Christ draws today with a present power. If I be lifted up, will draw. It's present tense. That means that he's drawing them now. He does not say that he will sometimes. He's doing it now. Oh, I know not whom he may be drawing, but I do trust he is drawing some of you, as he said to his congregation. And then he said these words, Here I stand with the gospel to preach to you, like one with a magnet in my hand. Now, do I know who are God's elect? I do not, but I shall soon find out. <laughs> Are you not like a great heap of steel filings and ashes mixed together? I cannot separate you, neither need I put the filings on this side and the ashes on the other side. All I have to do is to thrust in the magnet and the division will be effectually made. Jesus crucified is the great discriminator. His atonement is the great detector of God's elect. That's what he's saying. The gospel reveals his eternal purpose. If God intends to save you, you will fly to his dear son. This is why gospel preaching, God has chosen through the foolishness of preaching to bring people unto himself because we have felt and experienced what God is going to do in their life. And so, it is clear that this should never hinder us from evangelism. But let me say secondly and in a positive way, that the sovereignty of God, for I have much people in this city, should be the basis for great, great, great confidence in evangelism. In this case, it seems very clear that the statement from God to the Apostle Paul was to encourage him. For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul, your labors are not in vain. Did I not say in Isaiah, so shall my word that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it will accomplish that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. If you preach the gospel for any amount of time, you understand clearly that God is saving people like you, you, you would never imagine. I was preaching in a church down in Florida a few years ago, and I man was sitting on the front row. He was from Detroit. He looked extremely Italian. And he was. He and his wife sitting there. I introduced myself to him. I said, hello, sir, my name is. And he, and he introduced himself. I said, sir, tell me, are you a believer? And he said, yes. I said, when did you become a believer? He said, last time you were here. I said, okay, um, what happened? He said, well, you preached about Jesus, and you called people to believe, and I sat there, and 
I believed. I said, okay. I mean, it's the Lord. That's what happened. Some have suggested that an emphasis on the sovereignty of God is the death of evangelism. Well, in Paul's case, it was the life of his evangelism. Spurgeon said it. Asked if he could reconcile the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. He replied, I wouldn't even try. I never have to reconcile friends. They are friends who work together. The more I understand human nature, the more I'm involved in evangelism, I have no hope that my work will ever be successful apart from divine intervention. Evangelism to me is the most pointless work apart from God's work. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sends me draw him. No one! If God doesn't work, we're dead. Man's nature is of such that clarity, fervency, organization, promotion, methodology, technology, and by the way, he uses all those things. But they have no apart no effect apart from divine intervening grace. But thank God, he does work. For I have many in this city who are my people. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains it. It calls it the activity of God in and upon fallen men, this working of God. It says, and I quote, enlightening, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Taking away their heart of stone, giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as that they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Come on, let's think about it. When the gospel is preached and people are saved, they become new creations. That word creation is creation. The same idea of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The miracle of gospel preaching is basically, in essence, the same idea of what happened when God created the world. He spoke the world into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And God is doing the same thing through gospel preaching because he is imparting light and life through the gospel. Gospel preaching is like resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. He said, Lazarus, come forth. He had been dead for days. Decomposition had already been set in. It was impossible for him to be resuscitated. He had to be resurrected. And Jesus spoke, and he came alive. And my dear brothers, God has given you the ministry to be his mouthpiece his ambassador in his stead in his place calling men to be reconciled to God and God in his powerful mysterious way not with thunder not with tornadoes not with lightning not with earthquakes but with a still small voice he speaks to the human heart he changes them inside out and they become new creations and God miraculously saves them. Just the other day I was in a church, in fact it was a Sunday a week ago and there was a guy there all tatted up. When I started in ministry we didn't even know what tat means. <laughs> he was all tatted up. And he began to tell me about how he had been saved a number of years ago and how God had miraculously transformed his life by the power 
of the gospel. God's powerful in calling sinners should cause me to be extremely confident and encouraged in evangelism for I have many in this city who are my people. So as I conclude, just some very simple thoughts as we finish. Number one, and I'm going to say this primarily to those of you that are in gospel ministry, but this should be true for all of us. I started out by wanting to say we should be bold in our witness, but I decided to change that. And that is we should be, we should preach, not with, not boldness, though, though we should be bold, but we should preach believing, believing. What did he say? Let me ask you this. Do you think Paul went out the next day and said, well, let's see what happens? Well, I'll do my best. You know, I'll give it a hearty try. Is that what you think he thought? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I believe the statement infused into him a greater sense of belief. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We must believe that he is and he rewards those that diligently seek him. I must preach believingly. God is at work. When people naturally reject the gospel, when they seem resistant, don't be surprised. They're dead. But God is able. He is the God of resurrection power. He is the God of life. And he has said, for I have many in this city who are my people. And secondly, we should definitely preach patiently. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, obviously there Paul's saying God's got to do the work, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Should, we should be patient. We are always in a hurry. God is not. We want fast results by human nature. God is working over a lifetime. And he's going to do it in a way that will bring him the greatest glory. And finally, we should preach prayerfully. Whatever a man's theological persuasion is, and I've learned this over the years, I've always asked this. Do you believe God has to do something in somebody's heart in order for that person to get saved? I've never had anybody say to me no. Unless they read Charles Finney. And that, by the way, that's true. Because I've read Charles Finney. Everybody believes that. I said, why do you pray? Because you're asking God to do the impossible. Now, how do you explain that work? That's the difference. But we should pray... And beg God to pour out his spirit as our good brother did tonight. If we're evil and know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the Heavenly Father give the spirit to them that ask him? We should pray for an outpouring of the spirit. That's what was given on the day of Pentecost. The outpouring of the spirit is simply a greater measure of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't work differently. The manner of His working is the same. He works by His Spirit through His Word. But we all know that there's differences in the wind. There could be a gentle breeze or there can be a hurricane. Wind is wind. But there's a difference in the effect of the wind. We should be praying for a greater measure of the Spirit. That's the way they prayed. That's the way Edwards prayed. That's what he wrote in his books on revival. He prayed for a greater outpouring of the Spirit of God. He didn't do anything different in his manner, but the measure was different. And so that the Spirit of God came in glorious power. Carey said, the most glorious works of grace that have ever taken place have been an answer to prayer. And it is this way 
we have the greatest reason to suppose that the glorious outpouring of the Spirit, which we expect at last, will be bestowed. May the Lord grant us the strength of soul, the encouragement of heart. Having these precious promises, we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4, how awesome is that? If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost because the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. We have these precious promises. We do not peddle the word of God. We don't play games with the word of God. We stand before our people in humility because we all know that we are not worthy to preach the word of God. And none of us has lived up and measured up to that standard this week. In thoughts, intents, in hearts, in actions, reactions. And yet the Lord has called us and redeemed us by his blood. And has called us to be his own. And may the Lord give us the grace not to lose heart. In South Carolina... I, I ministered in Michigan for many years. Up there, they, they, they drink soda pop. They call it pop. In the South, everything's Coke. <laughs> and everybody here knows what it is like to drink soda pop with the fizz gone. It's, it's lost its fizz. It's lost its, its zip. When Paul said that we don't lose heart, it, it's, it's losing your fizz. It's losing that, that passion. I have in this city much people. They're in your city. They're in our city. They're even in Greenville. And we pray that the Lord will grant us the grace to be faithful, to be fervent, and to be believing that he has in this city much people. Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness. You are merciful and kind. We pray, Lord, as our dear brothers have already prayed and already the Spirit is sensed in this building through the faith of these people that are here, and the mission has been clearly stated that for your glory to spread the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray for your grace to be upon us in these times together. Our hearts strengthen, as our brother so eloquently put it tonight, of the rolling of the tide of evil. And we know the only answer is the gospel. It's not going to be a morality. It's not going to be... Um, something provided by the state, but it can only come through the preaching of the gospel. Lord, give us a heart to relish in the glory of the gospel, to worship you through the gospel, understanding that we would go out and preach it with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.